Hey guys, I'm your host Smita Gunturi and welcome to the Jenny podcast, your weekly podcast on transformational journeys. Hope you guys enjoy. Interview with Mary Beth is more than a story. It's the change that she fought for the society. To my request, she graciously accepted to explain the full detail of her work, which I tried to cover in a couple of episodes. So please tune in to learn more. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Hi, today I have Mary Beth with me. She is a mother of four boys, re-entry coach at South Dakota Women's Prison, ACS master trainer and enough abuse trainer. After her older two sons disclosed sexual abuse in 2009, she started her organization Endeavor 52 to educate adults, children and professionals on how to keep children safe. She was also involved in a passionate group of professionals who drafted Jolene's Law, which led to position on the advisory board. Mary Beth is motivated to help survivors and family members overcome child sexual assault and now uses her background in healing after trauma to help at-risk women involved in the criminal justice system create a better future for themselves. Welcome so much to the show. First off, I have to say I'm really honored to talk to you, to know you personally for all the work that you have done and I've gone through your website. It is a tremendous work that you are doing. Thank you so much for being here, please. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here talking with you and being able to have this opportunity to just share our story and be able to hopefully give some hope to people and and some tangible things they can do. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. So yeah, please tell us like what made you to start this journey and what is the programs that you're having? And as I mentioned, like, we are not going to cover everything in one episode. We are going to do multiple episodes depending on the information that you are providing, which will help a lot of people to, edu- to get educated and also to help other people in the society. So please go ahead and share your journey. Well, our journey started uh, about 11 years ago and it was just kind of a normal day. We were uh, hanging out in my, at the time, my father-in-law's shop and we we're working on a vehicle. And so it was myself and my two boys and my husband at the time. And uh, we were just sitting there hanging out, visiting. And my five-year-old came up to me and he sat next to me. I think I was sitting on a tire, you know, that was just next to the vehicle. And he said, mom, uncle shared his germs with me. And I had no idea what that meant, but it was kind of one of those things that you just get the sick feeling in your stomach, like, okay, this can't be good. Um, So I said, what did you say, buddy? He said, uncle shared his germs with me. And so because there were some other people around, I wanted to take him into the office and kind of ask him what he meant. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I brought him in there and I said, okay, bud, what does that mean? And what he described was a sexual assault at the hands of my brother-in-law. Oh, sorry. You know, it was like being hit in the stomach with a two by four. I mean, it was just the worst feeling. And I, you know, I have, I always give credit to God for the reaction that I had because I didn't freak out amazingly. Um, I gave him a huge hug and I said, oh, buddy, I love you so much. That never should have happened, but I thank you so much for telling me. Um, I am so proud of you and we're going to do something about this. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't ask any questions. Uh, Well, I think the only question I asked was, well, when? I had no idea because, I mean, I was a stay-at-home mom, so I didn't have my kids at their house very often and he said well when you went out for your birthday so that had been two days prior Hmm. Um, so this was June 10th that my kids disclosed and it was June 8th on my birthday when my husband took me out to supper Hmm. and we just left him with you know his sister and her husband Um, so that was the only question I asked uh, which later I found out was good and I'll explain more about that later but uh, so at that time you know he seemed fine he wasn't distressed. And so I sent him back out um, to play in the shop. And I called my husband in and I just, I told him what my son had told me. And I mean, he didn't know what to do either. He's like, okay, what do we do? And I said, well, we need to ask my oldest son if something happened to him. And so I brought my oldest son in and I just 
you know, I knew enough, like I have family in law enforcement. And so I knew enough not to say anything that would give my kids like an impression of something. I just wanted what them to open up about what they, whatever it experienced. So I asked, I brought him in and I said, Hey bud, I said, did anything happen when you were at your aunt and uncle's house a couple days ago? And immediately he just started bawling. And I just, I was sick. I was like, oh gosh, here we go. <laughs> and um, he, he is a lot more, especially when he was younger, a lot more withdrawn, um, very emotional. Mm -hmm. And so he was less open about it but he shared enough that I knew that we had to do something. So basically long story short, as far as that goes, we, um, I'm good friends with the law enforcement in the community. I've just always have been, like I said, they were always part of my life. So I called the police officer that I knew and I said, Hey, my kids just said this, uh, we need to do something. I don't know what to do. And he said, okay, bring them into the office and we'll visit with them. He said, I'll be in plain clothes. I won't be in my uniform and we'll just get a disclosure. Hmm. I said, okay. So, um, you know, I can continue to go into detail a little bit more about that, but what ended up happening is uh, we ended up doing, going into the police department, doing a disclosure statement um, that was videographed. And then they, the police officers questioned my brother-in-law and he admitted to everything. And then they accompanied him to his house where he admitted everything to my in-laws and my sister-in-law, his wife, mm -hmm. um, which they then took custody of him. Um, two days later, my five-year-old uh, then told a little bit more. So what that call, that's called is piecemeal disclosure. Mm -hmm. So basically kids, they'll tell you little bits of the information to gauge your reaction. Mm -hmm. And if you don't freak out, <laughs> then they're going to tell you a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So that's why a reaction is so important. Yeah. Um, so what it ended up being disclosed to us later, two days later, is uh, my five-year-old said that there had actually been some anal penetration. And so immediately I called up the police chief. And I told her what he had said, and we made the, an appointment to go down to the Child Advocacy Center the next day, which was four hours away. Mm. So she graciously agreed to drive us down there in her squad car. So we were going 90 miles an hour the whole way, trying to get there as quickly as possible because, you know, the, the genital area of anyone it heals very quickly. It's a very vascular part of the body. Yeah. So we knew that time was very crucial for there to be any evidence. Mm -hmm. So we zipped down there and feel free to stop me if you ever have any questions. Yeah. Um, we zipped down there and, you know, we went to the place called Child's Voice in Sioux Falls and the boys were tested for, well, they went through a whole medical checkup basically. Mm -hmm. um, and they're also tested for any uh, sexual transmitted diseases, um, basically just everything. And then they were also interviewed by a forensic interviewer. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, fortunately, I mean, fortunately, there wasn't any damage. Um, but unfortunately, there wasn't anything to prove that there had been anal penetration, though the forensic interviewers and everyone said, we 100% believe your kids, their disclosure is solid. Um, we have no reason to doubt. We just want you to know that there's physical, no physical evidence. So anyway, what ended up happening at that point um, is we weren't really given a whole lot of resources. Now in South Dakota at this time, 11 years ago, there were not a lot of resources, um, especially for as far away as we lived. So we kind of, we kind of just got told, you know what, get them into counseling, good luck. <laughs> it, was, it was that type of thing. Um, 
we continue or we started the the journey of pursuing justice mm. um that was pretty interesting um it was just a lot of questions i had to do a lot of research i had no idea what to expect our state's attorney was very very helpful um but the thing that a lot of people don't realize is what you have to change at your home once your kids have been through this mm -hmm. is pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, and so I really started pouring myself into knowing, you know, how do I parent these children? Um, what kind of counselors do I look for? Which was really hard to find uh, because of our rural area that we live in. Um, and I just wanted to be as equipped as possible to give them the best chance. I mean, I had been raped in high school uh, by my so-called boyfriend at 16. And so I knew a little bit about the damage that that can cause. But as far as being a child, I had no idea. I mean, I was just, I was completely in the dark, you know? So I started reading a lot of research papers, um, <laughs> books, uh, scouring the websites for any tangible information to know how to help my kiddos. One thing that I realized is, you know, I started seeing a lot of emotions come out. Yep. Um, and, you know, in another episode, we're going to talk a lot about how to respond and how to help kids heal. Um, but specifically for my kids, you know, my youngest, I saw a lot of anger hmm. and, you know, anger is a, a fine emotion. It's healthy. It's good. But what we do in that anger is what's important. So I had to teach them, you know, it's okay that you're angry right now, you know, but we can't hurt people when we're angry, you know, those types of things. I remember my five-year-old when he was eight, he, I mean, he was just furious all the time. And I finally, one day, I made a paper box. I just folded it up and I said, okay, bud, come here. Let's go to the sink. We're going to, I'm going to show you something. And so I turned the sink on just to a, a trickle mm. and I let it go into that box. And I explained to him, I said, you know what, bud, we're kind of like that paper box. Anything that happens to us, um, the things that come into our lives, the good and the bad, you know, that's kind of the water. And if we don't learn to take care of those things, you know, it's eventually going to destroy us. And as I'm talking, that paper gets weaker and weaker and eventually that bottom falls out. And he, he said the coolest little analogy for an eight-year-old. I mean, I thought it was very neat. He's like, oh, mom, it's like if you pick up a, a backpack and it's full of books and you start swinging it around and you hit everyone. I said, yeah, pretty much. I said, because when you don't take care of what's inside of you and all those feelings and you don't learn how to manage them, you really can hurt the people that you love as well as yourself. So just having that open conversation with my boys was really crucial. Um, I also learned that um, self-harm was pretty prevalent in children who have experienced child sexual assault. So my older son, he didn't really get too much into that. Um, but my younger son did. So one thing that we did is we removed bedroom doors. That way they couldn't go in and hide and, you mm. know, hurt themselves. Um, so that's definitely a different dynamic in a house. Uh, things like that, we had to learn to um, be more communicative with our kids. You know, <laughs> kids are frustrating. We're, I mean, I'm a parent, we're all parents. Many of us are parents anyway, and they can be very frustrating. But what I realized is that, you know, child sexual assault victims, like they're already feeling so much feelings of guilt and, you know, blame, like they blame themselves. And so we really had to pay attention to how we worded things. You know, it was like, you can't just say, no, you're not allowed to do this. It was more of like explaining why you can't do this, redirecting them to something more positive. Cause it's almost like everything you say was like through a megaphone. Yeah. So there was a lot of changes as far as that goes. Um, eventually we were able to receive justice. Um, 
my husband and I appeared in front of a grand jury and kind of told our story. Mm-hmm. Um, our kids never had to testify. And that is because we accepted a plea bargain. Uh, we agreed to drop the rape charge because like we had said before, there was no physical evidence, mm-hmm. um, which in child sexual assault cases, there rarely is. Uh, and we can talk more about that too. But he was sentenced to two year, 10-year two consecutive terms. Hmm. Um, and then he would be eligible for parole after serving like, it ended up being like a third of it. So he's actually out of prison now. Um, he served 10 years and then he was released. But anyway, um, at this point, after he was sentenced, I got this random phone call from a mom in Rapid City. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, I read about your case in the newspaper and I called someone in town and she gave me her number. I hope it's okay. I just want to know, how did you get justice? This happened to my daughter and I can't get anyone to listen to me. And I was floored. I was a young mom. Yeah. And I was like, you mean this happens more? I mean, I had no idea. Mm-hmm. I had always been under the impression it was that creepy person that lived down the street or, you know, I thought the deal that if this was a relative was a rare thing. Mm-hmm. And so when she said this to me and she told me about her situation and that she was struggling to find justice and get anyone to pay attention, I was just, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, you're kidding me. Like, okay, so I need to look into this. So I started doing some research and we agreed to keep in touch, you know, and I tried to support her as much as I could, but I started doing research and I was just blown away at the numbers. I mean, when I started seeing, I think at this time, like there was, I think the, the statistics at that time were like one in six girls and one in eight boys. And now they're like one in four girls one in six boys before the age of 18 are sexually molested. And I just, I mean, I was completely blown away. I was like, why aren't we talking about this? Why aren't we doing something about this? We have, you know, seatbelt campaigns and breast cancer awareness and, you know, put on sunscreen when you go outside and get a colonoscopy when you get to a certain age. You know, we have all these great campaigns for health but we're having something that's occurring so much and no one's doing anything about it. And so I went to my boys um, and I said, you guys, you guys aren't the only ones that this has happened to. Like this has happened. This happens all the time. And my five-year-old, he's the one that has that very outgoing personality. He said, well, mom, you have to do something. You have to make it stop. And I'm sitting here going, I'm like a 20 something year old mom. I graduated high school. I have no idea, like, what am I supposed to do? And so that basically put me on this amazing path of, okay, what can I do? You know, what are the laws out there? Um, What is being done? What isn't being done? Um, And, you know, our faith is a huge part of our life. And so for me, I decided, all right, going to the Bible, like the walls of Jerusalem were built and rebuilt in 52 days. I would love to rebuild these figurative walls around children to protect them. I guess I'll research for 52 days, pray about it, see where I'm at in 52 days. If I feel like I need to keep going, I'll keep going. Well, here I am 11 years later and I've had a lot of 52 day blocks. So that's basically how I got going with it. So you have, is that your website that you are actually, you started that program by yourself? So what ended up happening is I started Endeavor 52 and that went back to that 52 day thing. And my endeavor was I wanted to protect children. Mm -hmm. So at that point, I started really figuring out, okay, what can I do? And that led me to, I mean, I made phone calls to 
um, senators' offices and representatives' offices and lawyers' offices, and pretty much anyone who would answer the phone got to hear about what I wanted to do. <laughs> and I, they've kind of called me the pit bull now. That's kind of my hmm, joking nickname because when I have an idea and I see something that needs to be done, I don't stop. I don't let go. And so I basically kept calling people and I said, you know, these are my ideas. This is what I think needs to happen. This is this law that's not right. We need to do something about this law. This is what we need to actually change. Um, and I had a lot of great people that really said, you know what, we don't know what you can do, but we're going to help you look up stuff. And so that's kind of what started. Well, then eventually, I mean, and I had a couple people that when I called them, like one gentleman in particular, when I called him and I told him what I wanted to do, he said, you know what, it's too much work. It's going to cost too much money. You're wasting your time. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, sir, you're wrong. And I don't care how much money it takes. I don't care how much time it takes. I will change things. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up talking, talking to a senator from my town. And I, I met with him for lunch. And I had this huge outline. I, it was like 15 pages. And I gave it to him. And I said, this is what I want to do. How do I do it? <laughs> and, and he looked over it. And he read it. And he read it for a very long time. And he said, this is amazing. I don't know what to do but let's figure it out. Mm. Shortly after that, he ran into another Senator from Sioux Falls, an amazing woman named Deb Soholt. And uh, his name was Corey Brown, by the way. And they were sitting there talking, you know, kind of networking. And she said, I have met this amazing woman and she wants to bring changes to our state for child sexual assault. Mm. And Corey, he like went forward to give her a hug. And then he stopped because he's like, okay, that's hugely inappropriate. I can't do that. I can't hug another Senator. And he laughed and he said, oh my gosh, Deb, I almost hugged you. He said, you have to meet Mary Beth. You have to meet her. You have to talk to her. So she called me and we started talking and we had this similar passion and we had this similar goal. And she told me about this amazing lady named Jolene Letcher hmm. who had been sexually abused as a child and how they wanted to change our state. And eventually they hooked me up with a bunch more professionals and we all did these great phone calls and we began to get a plan. And we decided Jolene would be our face for South Dakota. Hmm. Uh, Kind of be the, the person. Yep. Okay. And so she's where we got Jolene's law from. We created this task force in 2014. Um, and we basically wanted to study what South Dakota was doing right and what South Dakota was not doing. <laughs> and we wanted to find out okay, where can we make changes? And so we went ahead and presented our idea to the Senate and to the House, and it was passed unanimously. Everyone was like, yes, we need this. Yes, it was so exciting. And we began just researching. And so every month we'd get together and we would talk about our findings. So we had this amazing plan and our goals and Deb Soholt was our chair and Ellen, Alan Solano was our vice chair. And then we had all these amazing people. And each year we grew. It was, mm. So we did this for three years. I can't even tell you, like I had this plan of what I wanted to see done in our state. And I mean, it made sense. It, I was personally touched by child sexual assault, you know, for my kids. And telling their story was just, something I felt I had to do. But I have to tell you, being at these task force meetings and seeing these professionals, some of them who never had experienced child sexual assault and didn't even necessarily personally know someone that they know of, but they had so much passion 
and so much determination. I just, every meeting I had chills and I just was overcome with emotions because these amazing people were making it happen. So three years, we did incredible work. We basically formed this plan, this 10 year plan. And I will go into detail on that in a minute. But through that, we decided, you know what? Jolene's task force, it's time for it to be done. All of us members are gonna transition over to this advisory board. And so we created the Center for Prevention of Child Maltreatment. Um, and that is the website that you had, that I had sent you. Yeah. And the biggest thing that we realized is, you know, child sexual assault, it's an adult problem. It is directly affecting children, but it is our problem to fix it. Yeah. You know, in no other way do we make children responsible for their own safety, right? I mean, we give them shelter, we give them clothing, we give them food, we give them all these things, we make sure they have a car seat. But yet for so long, when it came to child sexual assault, like we left it up to them to tell, hmm. you know, and, and that's what the advisory board was so focused on. It's like, we need to make sure we're doing everything we can so that kids aren't trying to do this themselves, right? Yep. And so that was kind of the biggest focus. And so while child sexual assault was our main, um, you know, the main thing that we were centered on, we kind of wanted to expand it to all forms of child maltreatment. Because as I mentioned before, South Dakota doesn't have a lot of resources or it didn't at the time. So, you know, we were looking at numbers like South Dakota every year, at least 4,000 children in our state experience child sexual assault. That's that we know of. Wow. South Dakota isn't that big of a state. We don't have like I looked it up. millions of people. <laughs> So, and that's just, like I said, just reported. That's not all the people that haven't reported, right? And so that was something that we were like, we have to make sure we're doing something about this. Um, we also realized the child sexual assault, it's across all socioeconomic groups. You know, it's not just this group here or this group here, or, you know, whatever it's, it affects absolutely everyone. Yeah. And that was something that a lot of people, I don't know that a lot of people 11 years ago really understood that, you know, they kind of felt like it was specific to one um, ethnic group yeah. or one socio group or whatever. Um, so that was kind of some of the things that we started to really look at our 10-year plan ended up having, okay, I have notes. So if I look like I'm looking at something, it's because I am. So I ended up having six goals mm -hmm. and 48 kind of subsections, um, 48 components of those goals. Before so, you those six goals, I, I just have one question. Like yeah. when you are talking about sexual assault to the kids and trying to understand like what is causing were you ever able to understand it from the adult perspective like what is the driving them to actually do this to kids right and that's a challenging one um so one of my good friends and i actually met her when i began just learning um is holly strand and she is now with Pennington County as a forensic uh, analyst. She takes part computers for internet crimes against children. Mm -hmm. And when she first started her career, she had been a sex offender counselor in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. And I was just fascinated to listen to a lot of the stories that she told about things that she learned um, and then when I was in college going after my uh, criminal justice degree a few years ago, uh, I went to college late. <laughs> um, that was something that was really fascinating to me. I want to know why. Yeah. One of the misconceptions is that 
offenders offend because they were victimized as children as well. I heard that a lot. That's why yeah. I want to really understand. Is that the only reason? I mean, I don't think so. No. Um, and in fact, that's, like I said, a huge misconception. Are there offenders who have been sexually assaulted as children? Yes. But does that mean that everyone who is sexually assaulted as a child becomes an offender? No. <laughs> so that's something to be very important. Um, but is it a major factor? Absolutely. Because if you have someone who was sexually abused, never received help, was trying to process all this stuff in their own mind, like, why did this happen to me? Why did my body respond this way? Um, what do I do now? You know, because it creates so many emotions after you've went through that. Kids have no idea how to handle those emotions. Yep. I know a lot of adults <laughs> that can't handle emotions like that. And so these poor children grow up not having any way to learn how to appropriately become emotionally mature. They don't get healing. So yeah, there are a lot of offenders who were sexually abused because they, I mean, in fact, I know one personally um, who had been horribly abused as a child. And then she went on later to offend um, a couple children because she truly thought that that was normal. Mm. Truly. I mean, she just thought as a teen, oh, this is just what you do. Wow. Um, she went on to get into drugs and alcohol, um, spent time in prison and completely turned her life around. I don't think that girl will ever reoffend that way ever again. I mean, she completely changed her life. Now, was that common? Unfortunately, it's not. But there are definitely some offenders who were victimized as children. Absolutely. As for the rest of them, I don't think anyone really knows. I haven't found any hard, concrete evidence beyond, you know, it's a psychological issue. It goes down to their genetic structure. Yeah. Um, and then when we get into ACEs, we can talk more about how the genes are affected by trauma. You know, those things. I have never found a hard and fast rule that says if a person has A, B, and C, they're going to offend. I just haven't found that. And it's frustrating. I wish we knew. Yeah, but that's a great question. I think a lot of people, I wish we all had an answer to that. So, um, so back, like, I just don't want to have a misconception. Like, yeah, everybody who had that are the people doing it or like who had that or doesn't do anything. Like, I just wanted to get that into light. Yeah. Well, and I think that's an excellent thing to bring up because if you think, you know, if we're, if we're assuming, and if we're statistically looking at the fact that one in four girls and one in six boys are sexually molested before the age of 18, you're talking about an astronomical number of children who have been sexually abused. Yes. Thankfully, we don't have that many molesters out there. Yes. So statistically, you see how those two don't add up. You would have to have all these children growing up to be offenders. I mean, it just, it doesn't work. The thing that is important to understand though, is that most pedophiles, most sexual offenders have many, many, many victims. We're talking at least 100, 150 victims that were either just um, molested or completely raped. So that's where you're seeing this high number of victims come from is the fact that most offenders have many, many, many victims. It's just these kids never come forward. Yes. They never tell. So that's kind of where you see that. Um, so statistically, that makes sense. The kiddos don't always grow up to reoffend. So I, I think that's an excellent question. I'm really glad that you brought that up. All right. So Back to the Center for Prevention of Child Maltreatment. So some of the things that we really wanted to do is look at all these different areas that needed to change in our state. So one thing that needed to change was 
we began trying to gather data. And what we realized is there wasn't one place that was gathering this data in our state. And, you know, we had DSS, we had tribal agencies because we have incredible reservations here in South Dakota. Um, but it was kind of like little chunks and bits here and there. And we're like, okay, this isn't going to work. You know, we need to see everything as a whole collective picture. So that was one of our biggest focuses is we need to figure out what is one agency that can gather all this data and collectively put it together so we can see it. So that was one important uh, goal. That was goal A for us. Um, we ultimately wanted to be able to predict indicators associated with child sexual assault. And so that was another thing is we wanted to not only be able to educate people, but we also wanted to be able to kind of predict what was going to happen. Yes. You know, where can we, where can we focus prevention efforts in and where did we need to focus response efforts? Mm -hmm. um, so we had like memorandums of understanding and protocols to follow uh, for that collection, because of course, when you're dealing with kiddos, you have to have confidentiality. Yep. Um, but we also needed to make sure that there wasn't any lines being crossed because so many times when you have a kiddo who's experienced child sexual assault, they've probably experienced some other things too. Yep. So we saw a lot of kind of crossing as far as data goes. So we need to figure out, okay, this many kids suffered child sexual assault, this many kids suffered neglect, but how many suffered both? So we had to figure out how to separate that, but still get the accurate data. Mm. Um, one thing that we did through that is we put questions into a South Dakota survey of South Dakota students in grades nine through 12. Mm -hmm. um, and the survey is called the Youth Risk Behavior Surveillance System. And it goes through the Department of Education. And so about odd years, so every other year, um, and then other stakeholders get every two years, this survey is passed out. That way we can see what our teens are experiencing. Mm -hmm. um, and this helps us know, you know, where do we need to amp up our efforts within our education system? Um, Another thing that was part of that is incorporating uh, ACEs questionnaire elements within the South Dakota Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance System. That way we can know where do we have kiddos that need help and where can we amp up those resources. So goal A was really about our data and figuring out what exactly are we looking at in South Dakota specifically and where do we need to focus our efforts? Mm. So that was the, the main goal of goal A. Mm. Um, from there, we had goal B, which addressed public, private and tribal health. So we really wanted to focus on that capacity within those public, private, and tribal health systems to respond to all the children and families impacted by child sexual assault. Because mm -hmm. like I said before, I had to drive four hours yeah. <laughs> to get to a advocacy center in South Dakota. And the only way that we were actually able to be referred to that is when there was penetration, when mm -hmm. there was that, that assumption of rape. Yeah. Um, when it had just been, just been, molestation, we didn't qualify to go there. Now, as a parent of, you know, a kiddo who's been sexually abused, it's like, no, that's not good enough. You know, anytime your kid gets touched like that, you need help, right? And so we knew that we needed to amp up our efforts of what we were doing around the state to get more resources out there so families aren't feeling like they're alone, right? So we basically wanted to establish routine screening for ACEs within all medical and mental health professionals um, by, I think we want to be at like 100%. 100% of all medical and mental health practices will be implementing ACEs, uh, like the questionnaire within or by the 
year 2026, I believe. Um, One question. Yep. When you were talking about the prevention uh, method that you have implemented in the schools, mm -hmm. were the parents and other adults are also being involved in that or is that education only for the kids? Can I touch on that when I get to the education? Oh, sure. Okay, yeah. remind me, it'll be coming up. Because <laughs> I think I, I'll be able to answer your question with the whole thing. Sure. Awesome, yeah. that's a good question, I love it. Um, so one thing we also did is we wanted to begin using de-escalation techniques to kind of address those frustrating moments that parents and kids have. Mm -hmm. So we started establishing no-hit zones mm -hmm. in uh, facilities, like medical facilities, you know, the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. um, trying to get rid of the, the spanking mentality and encourage, you know, that good communication. Like, okay, this behavior is not okay right now. And there will be some consequences, you know, other consequences. Um, and then helping parents understand what they can do. So just having someone there to bounce in and say, hey, I can tell you're really frustrated right now. Let me help you right now with what's what you got going on. Because I know Junior's driving you nuts. <laughs> you know, we've all been there. <laughs> um, another thing we realized is that there wasn't any pediatric uh, sexual assault exam kits. You know, we talk about rape kits. We hear that on, you know, CSI all the time. Well, there wasn't anything for kids. So that was one thing we wanted to develop and get out to 100% um, of the medical facilities by the end of 2018. Mm. So that's pretty exciting as we were able to develop these and then get our medical providers trained. And then really keep up with that sexual assault response center um, and pediatric sexual assault nurse examiners, the SANE nurse, just mm -hmm. making sure that they have all the training that they need to have. Um, because we've realized that across the board, most of our professionals don't receive that much training on child sexual assault. Mm -hmm. Yet it's extremely prevalent. So why aren't we giving our providers these tools, right? So that was kind of a big part of that goal. Mm -hmm. um, goal C involved mandatory reporters. So anyone who works in a school, a church, and so on, you know, is a mandatory reporter. Mm -hmm. We wanted to make sure, because we started, you know, we started talking and the Department of Education has been involved in Jolene's Law and the center since day one. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to know, you know, what are our teachers getting trained in? Because where do our, our kids spend most of their days at? At school, right? And we began to realize that when it comes to prevention and between this one and the next one, we'll go more into that. But if child sexual assault is happening at home more because we know that about 94% of children sexually abused um, are abused by a parent, another relative, or another trusted individual, like a family friend, then we have to know that there is not a lot of education going on at home, right? Yes. Because it's happening at home. So one thing we knew is where do a lot of kiddos usually feel the safest? At school. Cool. Yeah. And yet our mandatory reporters aren't really being trained in what to do. You know, if a kiddo discloses, especially in a smaller school, that mandatory reporter freaks out and they're like, oh my gosh, if I say something, there could be repercussions there. If I'm wrong and nothing did happen, there could be repercussions for that family. I could lose my job. Like, you know, all of a sudden there's all these things going on and they have no idea what to do about it. Yep. And so we knew that there had to be some training available for these mandatory reporters. So Department of Social Services and Department of Education, we kind of all teamed up to create this mm -hmm. training program. And so through the website, through the center's website, you can actually go to the mandatory reporting um, section and you can, you know, our mandatory reporters can take free, free training. Mm -hmm. And all they have to do is sign in. They can take the training that we offer 
and that's it. And they get the education that they need to know, okay, what do I do if a kiddo discloses or if I suspect abuse? And it mm -hmm. talks about all those things. Mm -hmm. So that was something that was really important to us is to make sure that we are giving our professionals as many tools as possible. Uh, the other thing is we noticed that going back to our professionals, we noticed that a lot of them didn't receive training in child sexual assault. And I'm not just talking about medical providers. I'm talking about our law enforcement, um, our lawyers, the judges, mm. even counselors, you know. Um, so one thing that was important to us is we really wanted to pull in the board of regents and institutions to create new degree programs that focused on child sexual assault and maltreatment. So that's been a huge part of our focus is knowing what information do we need to get out there to our professionals and we want it to be a part of what they're doing and all this is collaborating with state tribal regional and national stakeholders that way we're all on the same page with this um, one thing that we did do is we noticed that there were two main components not in the mandatory reporting law. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to add that to our codified law. The two people that we added to our codified law as being mandatory reporters is uh, our dentists, because how many times does a dentist maybe see some broken teeth yeah. or maybe see some behavior between the parent and the child it kind of sets off those alarm bells. Mm -hmm. Wanted to make sure that they were involved in that mandatory reporting, you know, blanket. Mm -hmm. The other one that we added was EMTs. Mm. Because where do EMTs go? Yeah. They either go to car accidents or homes most of the time. Yeah. And if an EMT goes into a home and maybe is responding to a domestic violence call maybe he or she is going to notice something up with kiddos hmm. or maybe he or she is going to notice that the living conditions are unsafe. You know, it could be, there's just so many things and scenarios that we really value those EMTs giving us their kind of perspective on. So we made sure that they were a part of that programming or a part of that uh, mandatory reporter. Hmm. So then going into that criminal justice and child protective services response. Now, what was your question again? For the education one? Yeah. Yeah. When you are teaching kids, are you involving the adults as well into that education? Because even the adults at home, as you mentioned, most of these things are happening at home. Right. So what kind of a things being an adult, let's just say if I'm the one, what kind of a science should I be looking for from the kid to have that just in case if they are not able to like open up their mouth on what has happened to them. Right. So um, we're at goal D, but I'll kind of skip ahead to goal E real quick because I don't want to forget that. So goal E was public awareness. Mm. And that is where we really wanted to get some of those contracted campaigns um, out there to our public and to our professionals to dig even deeper into what we can do. Hmm. So one of the things we looked at is, um, you know, there's a law in many states in the US that was bringing education to kids. And initially that's kind of what I wanted to do. I thought that that was the right way to go. Hmm. Um, but digging into the law deeper, we realized that there, that that law, while it's amazing, it doesn't also provide uh, infrastructure on where to get funding for that. Mm. So we would have been telling South Dakota schools, which are already super tight for budget, you know, you need to teach this curriculum, but we're not going to help you figure out where to pay for it. And, you know, that kind of didn't work. <laughs> well we're like okay we can't have this expectation with teachers who are already you know extremely overworked yeah. um not in a bad way i'm just saying that they are very busy they have a lot of things on their plate that they have to teach in a day yep. 
And so we're like, how can we do this without having a required curriculum that teachers have to teach? Um, how can we still get education out there? So one of the campaigns that we started looking at and we eventually brought to South Dakota was the Enough Abuse Campaign. Mm -hmm. And to date, we have trained about 2,400 uh, professionals in South Dakota, most of which are at schools. Amazing. So our biggest focus is helping schools become trauma-informed. So we teach them those things to look for. And when we get into the actual enough abuse training, we'll kind of go over to that more um, and hopefully be able to encourage people. If you want enough abuse training in your area, you know, reach out, find out if it's available um, because it is so crucial. So it wasn't just about training children. It was about opening those doors of communication, you know, helping staff know what to look for helping child serving agencies like youth groups, um, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, things like that, helping them to understand, okay, what do we need to do to make sure that the kids that we are serving are as safe as possible? Yeah. Um, what do we do if a kid does, you know, disclose? So hmm. those types of things. So that was more important to us than sitting kids down and saying, hey, you know, this is A, B, and C of what you need to do, because that is going to open up a lot of challenges. <laughs> You're going to have very angry parents. You're going to have very uncomfortable teachers um, and a lot of other issues. And, you know, South Dakota is a beautiful state where we really get to make our own decisions. And we don't want to sit there and put a Band-Aid you know, curriculum and say, okay, this is the best thing for everyone to do. Now you have to teach kids, you know? Mm -hmm. So we figured that educating those adults, remember going back to, it's an adult problem. It's not a child problem. Was the best way to make sure that we were getting that education out there to create the best environment for a kiddo who wants to tell. Be the change you wanted to see. And that's exactly what Mary Beth is doing. In our next episode, you will learn more of her work in the changes she brought in her society. Okay, thank you for tuning in. And you can find me on all the socials at Smitha Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.